Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Stephen Ellis who lectures in history at NUI Galway. Ellis's writings have been published in eight countries and in six languages. A prominent aspect of his research since the mid-1980s has been the development of perspectives on Irish history in a British context and on Ireland as one of the Tudor borderlands. These perspectives were first explored in Tudor Ireland, Crown, Community and the Conflict of Cultures, 1470-1603, long the standard survey of Tudor Ireland. His book, Ireland in the Age of the Tudors, English Expansion and the End of Gaelic Rule, 1447-1603, to is a heavily revised version of Tudor Ireland, with three additional chapters. He has recently published a comparative survey, The Making of the British Isles, The State of Britain and Ireland, 1450-1660. to His paper is entitled Economic Upswing in Early Tudor Meath, Civility and Prosperity. This is... Um part of a project, an EU-sponsored project um, on European regions and frontiers um, that I've been uh, participating in over the last few years. Um, My apologies um, for the extensive reliance on dry uh, um, arithmetic and calculations in this paper, um, and also an apology for the absence of a discussion about the terminology used, but unfortunately I can't do everything in 20 minutes. One of the characteristics of English government and state formation in late medieval and Tudor times was the use by ministers and officials of a rhetoric of difference in regard to land and people. The rhetoric distinguished between the king's English subjects born under the allegiance of the English crown and aliens born in foreign parts. A basic aspect of this was the distinction between civility and savagery. As early as the 12th century, English commentators were highlighting as the essence of civility what in reality were the normal features of economic activity in lowland England that is, a well-populated landscape with a settled society, wealthy towns and villages, a manorial economy, a cereal-based agriculture, and a well-differentiated social structure with numerous gentry. By contrast, they denigrated the peoples of the British upland zone as lazy, bestial and barbarous a shifting population living in mean wooden huts and scattered settlements in remote regions of forest, mountain and bog, eking out a miserable existence from cattle raising and rustling. In Ireland, this rhetoric took the form of a schematised tripartite division of the population and conditions on the ground, which remained largely unchanged into the mid-16th century. In the more heavily settled parts, supposedly there dwelled the king's loyal English lieges, living in the land of peace. Those districts under native rule were by contrast inhabited by the wild Irish, the king's Irish enemies living in a land of war. 
Sandwiched precariously in between were the English marchers, whose English inhabitants were often described as English rebels because they adopted Gaelic customs and law. The terminology reflected English perceptions of the very different patterns of settlement, modes of behaviour, customs and dress among the Irish, which the English regarded as primitive and savage. As part of this rhetoric, English officials also developed a checklist of the attributes of civility in regard to such things as dress and the organisation of agriculture. And nowhere in Ireland was this English civility more remarked on than in comments on conditions in the four obedient shires around Dublin, which by the later 15th century were defended by a system of tower houses, fortified bridges, dikes and ditches. If it will move for me. Oh, hang on. A key marker of this civility was the increasing amount of tillage practised on the estates there. Conveniently, changes to the Irish parliamentary subsidy in the later 15th century allow us to measure the levels of of tillage in the four obedient shires at this time. The subsidy, the chief form of taxation in late medieval Ireland, was nominally levied on ploughlands, 120 medieval acres of cultivated land in each barony. Where earlier each county had contributed its customary quota to the overall amount, regardless of the levels of tillage, from the late 1470s a uniform rate per ploughland was agreed throughout the four shires. The actual assessments were then adjusted in accordance with the amount of land actually under cultivation. So the subsidy extent compiled about 1502 gives us a fairly clear indication of the actual levels of tillage, barony by barony, throughout the four shires at this time. According to this, the lay baronial assessments for Louth amounted to 106 ploughlands, Uh, For Kildare, they amounted to 130 ploughlands. For Dublin, 180. And for Meath, 299. In total, 715 ploughlands. In addition, this extent gives a breakdown of the assessments for crosslands and clergy. Uh, Louth, 6.5 ploughlands. Kildare, 30. Dublin, 80. Uh, and Meath, 40 and three quarters. And so in total, 157 and a quarter ploughlands. This meant an overall assessment of 872 and a quarter ploughlands, which at the uniform rate of 13 shillings and fourpence should have yielded a subsidy of 581 pounds and 10 shillings. It represented over 260,000 statute acres under tillage at this time, so highlighting the region's unique position in the intensive exploitation of tillage for a commercial market. Looking at the incidence of the subsidy barony by barony, it's clear that tillage was focused on the heartland of the four shires, the so-called Mahary. The Barony of R.D. in County Louth, for instance, was assessed at 34.5 ploughlands, uh, whereas Louth Barony, immediately to the north, but mainly in the marches, was assessed at a mere nine ploughlands. In County Dublin, 
Newcastle barony was assessed at 50 ploughlands, whereas Rathdown barony, closer to the Leinster Mountains and the Irish, was assessed at just 20 ploughlands. Likewise in Meath, the barony of Navan uh, was 36.5 ploughlands, with Delic and Screen also rated over 30 ploughlands, whereas none of the baronies in the Western Marches was assessed at more than 6 ploughlands. And in County Kildare, a rather earlier assessment in 1479 rated the northeastern baronies of Leaslip and Nace, both in the Mahary, at 20 ploughlands each, but none of the other 12 baronies was assessed at more than 9 ploughlands. These variations partly reflect the land quality in each barony, but the major reason for the differences was the administrative and military division of the four shires into marches and mahari. In the face of Irish raids on the English marches, cattle could be moved out of harm's way, but crops got burned. The region's defensive system had gradually been built up uh, during the 15th century, and the precise boundaries between Marches and Mahari were then fixed by statute in 1477. One reason for this was to regulate the taking of coin and livery. The Act of Marches and Mahari, passed by Parliament in 1488, prohibited the imposition of coin and livery anywhere in the four shires except by landlords on their own tenants in the Marches. The obligation to military service uh, in hostings against the Irish also reflected this administrative division. Lords and gentry resident in the Mahary were to send one longbowman to the hosting for each £20 of annual income. Gentlemen dwelling in the marches were to send one horseman for every ten marks of annual income, but also to cess kern on their march lands for defence. So the distinction between the military obligation in marches and in mahari was actually very clear. Now, at first sight, it might appear that the overall assessment for Meath, 340 ploughlands, as opposed to 260 ploughlands for Dublin, the second most heavily assessed <coughs> county, uh, that this might show that levels of tillage were higher in Meath than elsewhere. Meath certainly was much the largest of the four shires, but around half of its geographical area lay within the marches. Louth and Kildare lay chiefly in the marches, but almost the whole of County Dublin, apart from a thin strip to the south, lay within the Mahary. So by 1502, its assessment, um, over 76% of the Meath assessment, was proportionately far heavier than that of Meath, which was three times the size. At any rate, these figures provide a fairly accurate indication, I would argue, of the relative levels of tillage in the four shires. The evidence indicates uh, that the amount of tillage uh, in the region was rising significantly from the 1470s onwards. In 1479, the overall assessment for the lay baronies of the four shires, excluding crosslands, and clergy was 673 ploughlands. By 1502 it had risen to 715 ploughlands 
and shire by shire, the Dublin assessment had increased from 159 to 180 ploughlands, Kildare up from 118 to 130, Meath from 276 to 299. Louth suffered a further small reduction from 120 to 106. Uh, but even here, the addition of Cooley Barony, now Lower Dundalk, which wasn't there before, at least not uh, in terms of these assessments, 12 ploughlands, just after 1500, was a hopeful sign. These increases reflect more stable conditions and increased prosperity in the region, and the rise continued. The under-treasurer's accounts list the actual sums, barony by barony, on an assessment of 13 shillings and fourpence a ploughland. So the lay baronial assessments on which the subsidy was based can be calculated. Uh, these show that by 1534, the overall assessment for the lay baronies had risen to 755 ploughlands, reflecting marginal increases for Louth and Dublin, a fall, small fall uh, in Kildare, and a very substantial increase uh, for Meath. For Meath, rather more evidence is available. Uh, the incidence and increase in taxation can be plotted barony by barony, and so the rising levels of tillage. Of the shire's 18 baronies, 11 lay predominantly within the Pale Mahari. Some of these eastern baronies were assessed at 30 ploughlands or more whereas western baronies, where political conditions were less stable and the land poorer, were assessed at just six ploughlands. A 17th century description of the united barony of Moyashal and Machredernan, for instance, noted that it included a great store, a red bog and loch and some mountain. And Corkery Barony had many barren mountains and heathy hills, not at all profitable. Beyond the march of baronies of Moigoish, Corkery and Machredernan in the far west lay a further strip of territory, once the manors of Granard, Lochsoidi and Kilkenny West. While still nominally within the county of Meath, this strip was now partly uninhabited wasteland and partly held by minor Irish chiefs and English marcher lineages where the writ of the Lord King does not run. A late 14th century assessment for Meath gives 366 ploughlands, uh, falling to 342 ploughlands in 1413. But by then... The three far western baronies of Moigoish, Corkery and Mahredernan had disappeared from the assessment. Now, the Shire's assessment for 1479, 40 ploughlands for the seven western baronies, all in the marches, 236 ploughlands for the 11 eastern baronies, was well down on this total, with sharp reductions in the assessments of all the eastern baronies. But the fact that the three missing baronies in the west had now been restored, albeit with low assessments, may well suggest that Meath was already, by the mid-15th century, beginning to recover from the trough. By 1502, then, 
the assessment had increased to 299 baronies, and when Sir William Darcy made a further assessment in 1508, the assessment was up to 315 ploughlands, which was not far short uh, of uh, levels a century earlier. Evidence concerning the actual subsidy yields bears out this picture. The standard parliamentary grant was 13 and 4 pence a ploughland, which on an assessment of 330 ploughlands uh, should have yielded £220 from me the loan. In 1521, the Exchequer actually collected just over £217 from the 18 baronies. But by 1533, the actual yield had risen to £229 indicating an assessment of 344 ploughlands, more even than 1413. And as regards individual assessments, those for the seven western baronies uh, remained unchanged for 30 years from 1479, but thereafter showed uh, slight increases. By contrast, the yields from... uh, the 11 Maori baronies showed a pretty striking uh, increase. Um, they rose from 236 ploughlands in total in 1479 to 265 by 1502, 275 in 1508 and 295 by 1533. These figures then are a fairly strong indication of increased political stability and prosperity within the Pale Mahari. Indeed, the border town of Kells, which in 1468 was described as lying in the frontier of the marches, was by 1488 already within the Mahari. A ploughland comprised 120 medieval acres, and there were roughly two and a half statute acres in a medieval acre. The total acreage of the baronies was only measured in early modern times, and later on, um, baronies were divided, and there were a number of other adjustments. But it's usually possible to reconstruct the size of the original barony in statute acres. And so, dividing this by the number of ploughlands assessed expressed in statute acres, 120 times 2.5, gives us a rough indication of the percentage of the land of each barony under tillage. And if we take the 1479 assessment, uh, in Meath, the 11 Mahari baronies were assessed at 236 uh, ploughlands, and the total acreage was 546,000 statute acres, which suggests that a shade under 13% of the land was then under tillage. By contrast, the six marcher baronies were assessed at a mere 40 ploughlands and the total acreage was 270,000 acres, indicating that just under 4.5% of the land was under tillage. In both cases, increased assessments suggest that the amount of land under tillage was rising over the next 60 years. The increase was slight in the marcher baronies, up from 45 to 4.9%, but it was more apparent in the Mahari baronies, up from 13% to 
to 14.4% by 1502 and 16.3% by 1533. The barony with the highest percentage of land under tillage was Screen, rising from 23.5% in 1477 to 27.5% in 1533. But the largest percentage increase was in Dees, uh, up from 14.8% in 1479 to 19.1% in 1533. Elsewhere, Newcastle Barony, County Dublin, had the highest percentage of land under tillage in the four shires, up from 52.5% in 1479 to 77.6% in 1533. The evidence for the other three shires is sketchier, but the lay barony assessments offer a rough indication of the percentage of land under tillage in the four shires, suggesting that the average level of tillage throughout the four shires in 1479 was 12%, rising to 14.3% by 1533, and broken down as follows. Dublin, uh, 30.4% up to 34.9%. Uh, Louth, 16%. It's all on the table there. I won't read it out. Uh, you can see what the score is. This paper began by considering the rhetoric of difference used by English ministers to distinguish between English subjects dwelling on English ground and the benighted savages, natives beyond the pale, not just geographically, but in terms of dress and behaviour, what is these days disparagingly called two-nation theory. Tillage was, as we've seen, one of the key markers of English civility. So, when Sir Edward Poynings was redeployed to Ireland from the English Pale at Calais, it was natural to compare conditions here with the English ground that he had just left. What he saw around Dublin was a settled English society of market towns and manorial villages, surrounded by an effective system of fortifications to keep out the wild Irish. It required no great leap of imagination for him to coin the name English Pale for the four obedient shires. And the name stuck. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this historyhub.ie podcast. You can find many more podcasts by visiting the historyhub.ie website.